It's this time of year where uh, the tradition of particular Christmas movies start propping up, right? Anybody started to watch, you know, family classics? You grew up watching particular movies this time of year. It's, it's that time. It's that time of year. Well, there, I don't know if you know this, but there's a really famous Christmas movie um, that was actually an adaptation of Luke chapter 2. And it's about a little boy named Kevin. And uh, what happens is the extended family are all over at the McAllister home and they're going to go on a trip uh, to take a plane, a flight the next day for a Christmas holiday and they all pile in the vans. They're running late. They slept through the alarm. And so it's a mad dash and it's not until they're flying on the plane that the mother realizes, Kevin! And so what happens next is she's now flown across the world and now she has to fly back. That's going to take a whole nother day and then she's got to find her son and get to her son. And that's really complicated to do. And so, um, it, again, it's an adaptation of Luke chapter two. I'm sure you know this, right? Where, where Jesus is with his parents, they go to Jerusalem for the Passover. It was, as was their annual tradition, they would make their way from Galilee to Jerusalem. And then the Passover has taken place. Now the family in their little caravan are heading back to Galilee. And Mary and Joseph assume Jesus is with the family caravan only to discover a day into the journey, Jesus isn't here. It's kind of like Kevin, except in this case, it's the Messiah, right? And he's like 12. And so they freak out, I'm sure, and head back, day's journey back, because they're already a day in. And then another day, just trying to find Jesus. And they find him in the temple, um, uh, getting the wet bandits arrested. No, that's not true. That's probably sacrilege, actually. But um, what he's doing is he's actually with the teachers at the temple, and they are amazed at his understanding and his answers. And Mary is like, why have you done this to us, Jesus? And he's like, you should have known I need to be in my father's house. You know, a very messianic kind of answer. And off they go. Um, I tell you all this because uh, it's pretty amazing that Jesus came. Like, that's the point of Christmas. Like, Jesus came. And it's so amazing that he came. He not only came, before Jesus fixed our situation, he entered into it himself. No other tradition, no other faith, no religion in the world speaks of God like that. Has a story about God like that. He entered into the fray for us. And I just want you to see this morning. I I want to plead with you. I want to entreat you this morning that as Christmas approaches, that you would reaffirm your trust in this Jesus. So there's where we're going to go this morning. First, we're going to look at the most foundational fact about Christmas. Second, we're going to look at the purpose of Luke's gospel. Third, the upside down nature of the gospel. And fourth, the contrast of faith between two individuals we see in Luke 1. So first, the most foundational fact about Christmas. You ready for it? Here it is. God initiated. This is the most foundational fact about Christmas. It's this. God initiated. We pick up in verse 26, which is our text this morning, verse 26 of Luke 1 to 38. Starts with this. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God. 
few weeks past, we, we did a little sermon series called The Greatest Story, and we looked at the four major movements of the Bible, the entire Bible, uh, and we looked at those movements as creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And so just to review a little bit, we recognize that we live in a Genesis 3 world. Jesus came, brought redemption to it, yet sin remains in this life, and so we live in a Genesis 3 world, a broken world where sin has fractured humankind. See, the story of the Bible is that God made a perfect world and yet we rebelled and sin entered the cosmos. Literally, there's nothing that's been created that hasn't been affected by sin. And so now we experience brokenness, loss, we suffer, we're perplexed, we question God. Again, we live in a Genesis 3 world. Genesis 1 and 2, perfect creation. Genesis 3, sin enters the world and we live in this world. So I say this for a couple reasons. First, we all know there's something wrong with humankind, right? Will you grant me that? Like we all know there's something wrong with humankind and we can talk about that out there, but we also all know there's, there's something intrinsically wrong in here, And so we know this. So we could assume one of two things. Either something's wrong and nothing will make it right or that there's something that will make it right. There's only two options. We all agree something is wrong with humanity that can only shake down in one of two ways. Either nothing will repair it or there is something that will repair it. And secondly, we all, I believe like every human being, we all have a longing in us that can't seem to be quenched. Would you agree with me about that? We all have what I would maybe call, consider transcendent longings. Longings for, for the spiritual, longing for more, longing for something bigger than what we're dealing with here on the ground. Would you agree with that? This transcendent longing. Well, traditionally, of course, as, as human beings, we have tried to fill these longings and this brokenness with money, with sex, with religion. And I'm talking about religion in the sense of if I'm good enough, God will accept me. Maybe these paths will lead me to utopia or to feelings of transcendence, but that will last. And so we're wrestling with all these kinds of things, but we pick it up with our text this morning where God's plan is unfolding in such a way that what's wrong will get addressed and that will satisfy our souls. This text is starting to show us those two things are happening in this. So here's the thing. God's plan of redemption unfolds not with human ingenuity, not with our self-help plans, our self-betterment regimes, but with this, with God coming to us. God coming to repair the cosmos. God coming to repair the fracture in humanity. God coming to satisfy the longings in our hearts. What the most foundational fact about Christmas is, is this. God initiated it. When God came at Christmas, it was in sending his son Jesus to be our very redemption. It's the very most fundamental fact about Christmas. So yes, popular elements of the Christmas story are there. Angels, shepherds, wise men, a stable, a manger, a star in the sky, Mary and Joseph, all true, but don't miss this fundamental fact. You and I and all humanity, all the cosmos were in desperate need and God initiated a plan of redemption. He initiated 
and he came to us. Second thing I want you to see, the purpose of Luke's gospel. We're spending five uh, services here, the four Sundays of Advent and Christmas Eve, all in Luke's gospel, Luke 1 and 2. So I just want to back it up a little bit and go right to the very beginning of Luke's gospel because he shows us the purpose for his writing, and it's this, that your faith in Jesus may be secure. Look at verse 3 of Luke 1. It seemed good to me also... He's he's referring to, in addition to the key eyewitnesses, namely the 12 apostles, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. Luke's purpose in writing his gospel for Theophilus and me and you is so that you may have certainty concerning the things taught about Jesus and the faith. In Luke's mind, to do that properly means to take us back to when God initiates in sending Jesus. And so he spends the remainder of his gospel from there showing us how Jesus is far superior to John the Baptist, all the while showing that the greatest prophet Israel had ever seen was John the Baptist, but Jesus far surpasses him, and how Jesus fulfilled the scriptures, became the once for all sacrifice for our sins, conquered death, and ultimately revealing how and why life is found in his name. In our text this morning alone, Luke shows us that Jesus is the son of the most high, verse 32. This, this reference to the Most High is a common title for God used by Israel, especially in the Psalms. You will read about the Most High. Some of the, the faithful of ancient Israel were called the sons of the Most High. John the Baptist, later in Luke 1, will be called the prophet of the Most High. But Jesus alone is the son of the Most High, God's own Son, But not only will he be the son of the most high, we also read, Luke is showing us this from the get-go about Jesus, that he will reign on King David's throne forever. So Mary's betrothed to Joseph, and Joseph was a descendant of David, and what we're supposed to see from the start is that Jesus is the true and greater king, and the kingdom of God will be forever, and it won't be Genesis 3 ruling and reigning, but Revelation 21 and 22, that's the end of the Bible, that's how the story ends, Revelation 21 and 22 ruling and reigning of a perfect king. See, in a Genesis 3 world, Absolute power corrupts absolutely, but in a Revelation 21 and 22 world with Jesus as king, he will have absolute power and that will be a good thing because he will never abuse that power and his reign will never come to an end. And from the get-go, Luke's showing us that's who Jesus is. Why is he showing us these things? Because Luke wants us to have certainty, literally security, against stumbling. Do you have that? Uh, Luke is talking about the kind of certainty that caused the church to survive through centuries of terrible persecution. Luke's talking about the kind of certainty, the kind of security that withstands disease and disillusionment and grief and loss and martyrdom. And as your pastor, this is what I want for you. I share Luke's heart that your faith would be secure. Now, something I've been learning lately is that actually um, with with our moment, we are three generations removed from uh, participation in a major war as a nation. 
Um, we, are, we are also living in the most lavish economical circumstances ever. And so what that's actually created in the church is passivity. If I can just draw that out a little bit more at the risk of offense, um, the kind of passivity and faith that when something hard happens, we're ready to bail. Do you recognize that niggling in you? Like if this thing, God, goes bad, I'm out. I don't want that for you. I want it for you, Luke, the gospel writer wants for you the kind of faith that's so secure that can, your family can be persecuted and your faith remains strong. You can face any amount of hardships and your faith remains strong. Why? Because we would have certainly about who Jesus is and what he's done. That we have these longings in our heart and Jesus alone satisfies them. That he does these things. Man, all the gospel writers have this heart. Matthew has the same desire in mind that we would put our trust in Jesus. That's why he starts his gospel with a genealogy. Aren't those the best? Any people are doing the Bible reading plan in a year? Isn't it your favorite day when you come across a genealogy and you're just like, okay, buckle up, brace yourself. Here we go, name after name after name. And only one out of 10 of them is potentially a good baby name. Like, what are we doing here? What is this for? What's, what's gonna be helpful here? Why is this here? Well, the reason that the gospel writer Matthew starts with a genealogy is because he's talking about verifiable facts, not fantasy. He doesn't start with once upon a time, he begins with with here are the verifiable lineage from Abraham to King David, from King David to Jesus. Matthew is not beginning the story as fantasy or metaphor. He's giving you real names of real people and real events. Matthew wants you to see Christmas is good news, not good advice. Luke wants you to see Christmas is good news, not good advice. See, the thing about advice, I, I'm given a lot of advice. And the thing about advice is you can take or leave advice. I mean, you should listen, you should hear it, but you don't have to follow it. It's advice, but news. News is the report of something that has happened that's already been done. It's a fact. So the news Matthew wants us to understand and Luke wants us to understand is they're reporting news that happened in history rooted in reality. And they ask you the question, will you believe Jesus. Like, will you believe these things about Jesus? Not only do we want you to, to, to answer with a yes, but a firm yes. That no matter what comes, Jesus is true. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is king. Jesus rules and reigns. Third, what we see about the upside down nature of the gospel specifically is this, that the needy receive it. Again, we are wealthy and we are far removed from so much turmoil in our society as far as upheaval goes and, and wars and things like that. And that can create a real comfort in us, can create a complacency in us. It can create in us the kind of culture where we think, man, we are doing well. Look how safe we are. All of my affairs are in order. I'm a good person. What we see in verse 26 is that Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed. I mean, I just said some things that are crazy unlikely to first century Jews, not seeing any of that coming. A few weeks ago, I was with some pastors 
we met in Vancouver. And these are other lead pastors of churches across Canada that are multiplying. Um, God is doing this a really cool thing across the nation where there are a few churches that are multiplying in, in fascinating ways that God seems to be really using. And so we've started to come together and to ask, how do we leverage this for our nation? And it's interesting because I sit at that table and I feel really small because... You know, there's a pastor from downtown Toronto there and they're raising up church planners and they're sending them to different parts of the city. We're talking 4 million people. Toronto, the center of Canada, the most important part of Canada, right? We're all like, no, forget it. But that's a pretty big deal. And, and then the pastors from Vancouver, right, where their, their, their churches are growing and their churches are multiplying. They're planting churches. They're planting campuses. We meet in a massive theater downtown and important people go there. Church, uh, churches multiplying from Victoria, churches from St. John. Now, St. John maybe seems small to you, but as far as Newfoundland goes, like that's New York City. And so it's big deal. And then we go around the table, everybody's introducing, and I'm like, I'm from Chilliwack, and everybody laughs. And to talk about how it smells. Even the guy from Abbotsford. I'm like, dude. Here's the thing. We in Chilliwack know you're exactly like us. You just have way too much ego about it. You're half an hour closer to Vancouver. Whoop-de-doo, you know? Anyways. What was my point? Okay. Um, Nazareth. Literally a nothing place. Like it's not mentioned in antiquity really. Like it's almost like a, it didn't exist. Like it's, I think it's mentioned no times or one time in the Old Testament. It's barely uh, mentioned in history of Israel. Like there's just not much about it. Why? There wasn't much to it. It, was, it wasn't a place of significance. In fact, there was a saying that, 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 that took place around the first century and it's even recorded in the scriptures. The question, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was a nothing place. And who does this, this amazing promise come to by an angel? It comes to a virgin girl in Nazareth. Can I tell you something staggering about the gospel that ought not to be missed, but the, the challenge is that it can very easily be missed in our time and place, our moment? The greatest news ever proclaimed came to the humblest place and the humblest of people. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said he might have gone to Jerusalem and picked out Caiaphas's daughter. Caiaphas was the high priest at the time, who was fair, rich, clad in gold embroidered raiment and attended by a retinue of maids in waiting. But God preferred a lowly maid from a mean town. And if the incarnation happened today, it wouldn't be in Vancouver or New York or London. It would take place in Lake Iraq or Agassiz, or Nazareth, in an ordinary place in some nameless town. And this is a key aspect of the gospel. Don't miss this about what God is doing in this text. We need to understand the essential, the essential, not essential, uh, essential spiritual fact of the incarnation and the gospel. Jesus comes to needy people. Jesus comes to needy people. Sorry, I got you sidetracked with that one. And those who recognize their need are the ones who receive him. Do you hear the danger for us? Do you know 
your need of a savior. I'm saying that to those of you exploring faith in Christ. Do you know how much you need him? But I'm not only saying that, I'm talking to those also who accepted Jesus recently or a long time ago. Are you aware of how desperate you are for Jesus? How bankrupt, how weak spiritually you are without him. It's those who realize they can't make it without him who are saved. The incarnation, salvation, the gospel, Christmas, they're not for the proud and self-sufficient, they're for those in need. Jesus famously said, it's not for the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but sinners. It's not like Jesus came for sinners and not the righteous. Even those who consider themselves righteous are actually self-righteous and they need Jesus. Everybody needs Jesus. Here's the thing about doctors. You don't even think about them until you need them. (laughs) You don't even think about them until it's time, I need to go to the doctor. But here's the thing. We all need the great physician. We just spend most of our time thinking we're fine. Matt Smethurst wrote, God is not the great pharmacist filling our prescriptions and sending us on our way. He's the great physician healing our brokenness and restoring our world. You know without Jesus, you're dead, right? You know without Jesus, you're utterly lost and in a helpless state, right? So, so as, if that's true, Oh, the wonder of Christmas, hey? Oh, the majesty. Oh, the grace. Oh, the mystery. Oh, the awe that fills our souls. Just have a listen to 1 Corinthians 1 by the Apostle Paul about this upside-down nature of the gospel. He said, but God chose what's foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of him who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So I want to apply this upside down nature of the gospel to us in two ways. First, I want us to be reminded to acknowledge our need of a savior Man, we are so given to self-absorption and pride. I'm a self-made man and all that kind of stuff. We think we're somebodies when we're actually nobodies. Jesus is the great somebody and we need Jesus. Do you know this? Do you remember this? If you do, you know that Christmas leaves us in awe of God in wonder of his grace and of his love. The second way that I think we can apply uh, this upside down nature of the gospel is in terms of mission. Recognizing that there is no person or no place that is too inconsequential, too insignificant to bring the gospel to. There's nobody, no place and no person too inconsequential to meet Jesus. Back to these meetings I had a few weeks ago. We, we all went around the table. That's when I shared I was from Chilliwack. And, uh, 
But we all started to share uh, a bit about our context and, and the vision of what, what God had been doing in our spot. And so in my estimation, some really significant pastors in the room from churches in Canada where God is doing mighty things. And I just began to share the burden that's on my heart, that's on the heart of our elders in this church and really has become the burden of our church in general, which is that God wants to leverage every ounce of faith and generosity of our discipleship for the lost in our community and surrounding communities. And I, I shared, Chilliwack is not unique in this. There are actually cities like ours across the country that have a reach to more rural communities where there are dying churches or no churches and no gospel witness. And what if God would do across our nation what he's been doing at Central in recent years, which is that we might be a blessing to neighboring communities and bringing gospel light to them them because church isn't about us. It's for the glory of God and that others might know and become disciples of him. And as we ev leverage every ounce of what God has entrusted to us, we get more joy. We get more courage. We get more faith. We get more boldness. And God is doing that among us. And so I'm sharing this with them and said, what if across our nation, there are so many more Chilliwacks who could be a blessing to surrounding neighborhoods, surrounding communities, and could build into them and see a gospel witness there. I was like, I, I know Toronto's 4 million people, but do you know that there are 8 million Canadians in rural Canada? Who's going to reach them? It has to be the church looking beyond itself to be a blessing to not only its own neighborhood, but neighborhoods and communities beyond itself that it can bless. And it was really cool because the second time we met, so many of these pastors came back and said, you have no idea how encouraged we are by what God's doing in your church. I came back to my elders. I came back to our congregation. And I told your story and people are just so, feel so amazed at what God's doing and, and just catching that vision and saying, yeah, how do we do this in our nation and so these, these important places like Vancouver and Toronto are telling me, man, your church are inspiring us. We're nobodies. I'm a nobody. Some of you are somebodies, not me. What an important reality about the nature of the gospel. No person or place is too inconsequential to Jesus. And it's the needy who receive him and rejoice. May we have that posture of humility this Christmas, knowing our need of a savior and that he came for you. And knowing that there is no person so low of value that they are not deserving of gospel grace in their life and that we would go and we would share it. Lastly, I wanna show you a contrast of faith between Zechariah, who we looked at in the text last week, and Mary, who we see in our text this week. Last week, we talked about Zechariah and Elizabeth and how they were up in years and they were childless. Gabriel came to Zechariah and said that his wife Elizabeth would have a baby and that he would be like the prophet Elijah and Zechariah didn't believe it. He actually responds like, how will I know this? And what's comical about that is because he was actually asking the question to an angel. 
yeah, but maybe God could give me a sign and then I'd know and the angel's like, I'm right here, man. I don't know. I don't even know if they have wings, but it's just like, you know, like, just like, here's a sign, you know, like, what are you talking about, Zechariah? He didn't believe God, even with an angelic appearance. Meanwhile, Mary is told that she will not only have a baby who's like a, the prophet Elijah, but that she will have a baby and that he will be the son of God and the king of kings. And she believes God. Zechariah was the right person. He was a priest and he was in the right place. Not only was he in the city in Israel, Jerusalem, he was in the temple. Like I just said, Mary was the wrong person in the wrong place. Zechariah had precedent in the Bible for what the angel was telling him. And he was a priest. He should have looked back and said, yeah, God can do this. He did it for Abraham and Sarah. He did this for Isaac and Rebekah. I remember these things. God is able, but he didn't believe. Mary, on the other hand, had no precedent. The angel was telling her that she would conceive even though she was a virgin and she believes God. For Zechariah, having a baby would actually have meant public shame would be lifted. When Elizabeth becomes pregnant, she praises God that her reproach among the people has been taken away. This is a good thing for them. When Mary faces the, actually faces the potential of public shame, the prospect of a broken off betrothal because she might be found like that she had committed adultery and never marrying. She had the prospect of all of these things. She would essentially wear the scarlet letter of her day, yet she responds in faith. What Luke is doing is, is warning us in these two stories back to back, not to be like Zechariah and demand more signs of God's faithfulness than a humble, open heart would require, but instead to trust in God like young Mary her words serve as a model for all who experience the birth of the Savior in the lives. Like, don't worship her or anything. But she serves as a model for all who experience the birth of the Savior in their lives. She responds to God this way. I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. To that extent, Mary is the ultimate example of what always happens, always happens when God is at work by grace through faith. She will have her baby by the Holy Spirit. Now, some, like a neighbor friend of mine, question the validity of the virgin birth. They're like, oh, Christmas Eve services, eh? You're gonna celebrate the virgin birth, are you? You know, haha. <laughs> yeah, right. That's crazy. I mean, Mary herself, we see in the text, has questions about how this could be. And it's a fair question, right? Yet in her confusion, it's not a tone of disbelief. We have to catch this. It's a tone of amazement about how the virgin birth would even be possible. And so the angel answers her in verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy the Son of God. See, the same Holy Spirit that made light and life out of darkness in creation will bring life inside of her. But we don't have to stumble at points about the virgin birth or humanity of God. Gabriel assures Mary and Gabriel assures us and Luke wants us to know, verse 37, that nothing is impossible with God. Just a little philosophically for, for a minute. I know, I know that's kind of a, a big, it's a big claim 
to absorb and believe. But just to get philosophical for a moment, the moment you admit the existence of God is possible, even just possible, the moment you admit the existence of God is possible, you at the same time must deny the impossible. No? So we don't even have to say that God is real. We can say if the potential of God is even there, then the potential of a God who is more powerful than us is also there and who could do these kinds of things. Therefore, it is not impossible. If God, if God is possible, then so too is a powerful God who can take on flesh and come to us and satisfy our longings and bring that unique life about through unique means, namely the virgin birth. She doesn't fully understand, but her faith is growing and she's willing to follow. We are meant to take our cues from her in that regard. Elizabeth Elliot, a, a writer that I, I really admire, she wrote about uh, Eve, uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, Eve and Mary, and contrasted the two of their dispositions. Elliot said of, of Eve um, that Eve had a posture of give me what I want, well, Mary had a posture of, let it be to me as you have said. The Eve approach to God, she said, is, I know better, God is out to harm me. The Mary approach to God is, he knows better, God is out to help me. See, the only way a person can genuinely say what Mary says is to believe that God's plan is better than the plans we have for ourselves. I think that's the crux of the matter. Do you believe that God's plans are better? And do you trust him? Like Mary, we can't truly be servants of Jesus unless we accept his plan for our lives. He can't be our Lord, which literally means master, if we insist on ruling ourselves. If he is Lord, then we are servants, glad servants at that. Of God. This is how faith responds to grace. When God delivers you the Savior, you say, Thank you, Jesus, and you receive Him. When God announces His plan for your life, you say, You know best. I am your servant. Let it be so. I'm going to go a little softer on you though because, because that sounds very idealistic and that's what faith should do and that's how you should respond. But I just want you to know as your pastor, like I, I respond that way many times. I respond that way eventually. <laughs> and many times I respond that way through tears. Um, I, don't, I, I don't know why, but, but this fall I've, I found a few things in my life hard. Um, just just kind of inner sorting going on in my life. And my gracious wife has heard me hours on end just trying to talk through all the stuff stirring in me. And part of that being just a lot of self-doubt. Like, why am I here? Why, like, who am I? I either have moments of crazy pride or moments of utter despair, like I have no clue how to do this. Why am I here? I might even be a fraud. And uh, I, was, I was meeting with a pastor friend of mine this fall, kind of in the middle of all this. 
And he was sharing a story with me and he was actually reflecting on a lot of the same things that he had been through last year where he was just feeling like, man, this is difficult. I don't know if I'm in the right spot. And so he was just really seeking the Lord about that. And he went to a conference in London and this American man came up to him at the conference in London and gave him a very specific word from God, like very specific. The next day, a man from London at the conference walked up to him and gave him the exact same verbatim specific word from God. And he was relaying this story to me and how it gave him such fresh, fresh courage and boldness and just, just, just a settled contentment that God had him where he was supposed to be. And I listened to his story and I was so thankful to God for what he did in his life. But can I be honest with you? I drove away from that kind of being like, Lord, why are you doing that for me? I feel like I desperately need that. Why are you giving him such wonderful, specific words? And I feel like, so maybe that's confirmation I'm not doing what I should be doing. You know, it's just kind of, just one of those down times. And literally uh, the next day, I get a call from um, one of our campus pastors. And he's like, hey, Matt, I, I've been meaning to talk to you for a while because I've had this, this word from God all week long for you, but I've just been kind of like, oh, this is dumb. I don't want to do this, I, whatever, it's nothing. And finally, just today, I was like, you know what? I have to call. And so I just have to call. I don't know what this means, but God just gave me this sense that I'm supposed to tell you this message. Everything is going to be Okay. You know, I want to relay to you that Jesus loves you that much. Because <laughs> I, was, I, 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 was, I was kind of mad at God. I was crying out to God. I was asking him to give me such meaningful words. And he's like, okay, I'll give you that tomorrow. How about that? It's just kind of blowing you away. Like if, if you'll step out on a limb in this discipleship walk with Jesus and be in vulnerable places, often uncomfortable places where you feel ill-equipped. If you're following after Jesus, you know what your response is always meant to be as you pursue him? Let it be to me as you have said, just as you have said, your ways are better. You know way better. I'll go with you. See, Mary will go through some difficult trials in her life, some that she can anticipate and some she can't. No one's going to believe the, the virgin birth line that she gives over and over again. She will be treated as the mother of an illegitimate child. The savior of the world, her son, will be crucified and she won't understand it. And yet, like with Mary, our lives will not always be easy or pleasant or as we would like them to go. But when we surrender our lives to Jesus like Mary did, we are trusting that God's promises are true. I want to invite you into the teaching that that Jesus has been giving me this fall. And I think it just leads into Christmas perfectly. Will you trust Jesus at Christmas? He came to rescue you. He came to save you. He deeply loves you. He's for you. Will you trust him? I encourage you to. He will do mighty things. Jesus, I just praise you that you are that good. 
You give us hope when we need it, Lord. I, I, I do not come up here trying to paint a picture of the blissful, always on the mountaintops kind of a faith. That, that, that doesn't resonate with me. Uh, what resonates with me, Lord, is, is um, the highs and lows, the roller coaster ride, the trials and the joys. Um, and that, Lord, you would give us such faith in you that we're clinging to you, celebrating you, praising you in the highs and clinging to you desperately and thankfully in the lows, knowing that you will see us through. Thank you for being so good. Thank you for coming to me and my friends at Christmas. We praise you, Jesus. Amen.